Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. The word for our sermon text this morning is our Old Testament lesson, Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4 and 25 through 32. To remind you of that account, I will read the first two verses. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean, you who keep repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Fathers eat sour grapes, and the teeth of their sons are set on edge. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in our gospel lesson, we learned that the brother who said, I won't work, is the one who actually went out to the field and did the work. He repented, and the father was pleased. God called the Israelites time and time again to repentance. And to understand today's text, we have to take a quick trip through its historical context. God had promised Abraham the Savior would be his descendant and that a bunch of his descendants, they would be numerous, would inherit the land of Canaan. Through his grandson, Jacob, he has 12 sons, they end up down in Egypt where God can raise them up to be a holy nation separated from the Canaanite worship practices. But somewhere between three and 450 years later, uh, they are enslaved by the Egyptians. So God, with the plagues and his mighty hand, delivers them. And they get to Mount Sinai, we're at Exodus chapter 19, and they make a covenant with God. They would follow all of his rules, and by doing so, they would shine out with holiness. Their country would be a living sermon. Here is where salvation is found, the Messiah is coming, and in return, he would keep them a sovereign and independent nation. After they strike the deal, Moses goes up and gets the Ten Commandments and he's gone too long and they break the deal and worship the golden calf. They send out spies later on to check out the promised land and they trust the words of ten spies that are a report of unbelief and God bans that generation from entering the promised land. There's all kinds of problems with the next generation as they take the promised land. And, and then after that, we get the entire book of Judges, which shows time and time again, they chased after false gods, they broke the covenant, and after they repented, God would send somebody to deliver them. And this is the history of Israel. They reject God for a king, and God gives them a guy who's not too bad a king at first in Saul, but then turns out to be a pretty lousy king. Then he gives them David, who commits that one really, really big sin of murder and adultery. And we see throughout the nation of Israel, they constantly break their end of the covenant, which would keep them as a sovereign, independent nation. So, 150 years beforehand, God warns them through the prophet Isaiah and other prophets, I've had enough. Finally, we get to the generation in today's text. God had had enough and he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Jerusalem, but he left the temple intact. He took all the stuff out of the temple, but he left it intact and he left a, a puppet government set up, but he hauled off men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and this priest, Ezekiel, he hauls him off into exile too, but he leaves behind, God has him leave behind the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both are men who God uses to warn them. You're still not repenting. You're still chasing after false gods. You're still looking to something else to deliver you. And so I will give you the great backhand. God continually called them to repent and live as a nation and repent and live as individuals. And we see today that God called them to repent by giving up all their excuses and blame and by trusting in the new life that comes in Christ. And so it is that the men are hauled off, like I mentioned, into exile. They're now uh, ruled by the Babylonians. 
But Nebuchadnezzar hasn't destroyed the temple yet, and the people are saying this proverb, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children gnash their teeth. The Hebrew word for gnashing their teeth is it's so tart and sweet they grind their teeth together and their teeth are made dull. And the gist of the proverb is, it's unfair. God is punishing me for my father's sins. It was our fathers who turned their back to the Lord. Never mind that our sacrifices stink. Never mind that we're continually ignoring the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Never mind that we're ignoring the word of the Lord. It's unfair. God is punishing us for our father's mistakes. So God comes in with that declaration. He corrects them. But do you hear what's behind the whole entire thing? They're ignoring their own sin and they're passing the buck. This is as old as the first sin. Oh, Adam, who told you you were naked? The woman! The woman you put here! By the way, hint, hint, you're the one I'm actually blaming. The woman she ate! She offered it to me. Passing the buck. When I worked in the prison, I found there was not a guilty man behind those bars but one or two because it was always somebody else's fault. If juror number nine had not been such a Christian, etc. We pass the buck, we find our ways. If you hadn't caused this, I wouldn't have fallen into my sin. It's all your fault, not my own. But God gets right to the point as they say, you're punishing us for our father's sins. God says, a declaration of the sovereign Lord. Two Hebrew names for God are used here, and they each say a sermon, which I'm not going to give you today. I'll give you the gist of it. The first name is the name that God is the master of all the universe. He created all. He's all powerful over it. And the second name, Yahweh or Jehovah, is the name that God is absolutely faithful. Absolutely faithful to his promises. He's absolutely faithful to all of his covenants. The covenant for Israel to be independent when the Savior comes, which they had violated, not him. And his covenant with you that he has saved you through his son. His son did all the work. So he's got a sermon here right in his names. And he says, as surely as I live, there's nothing God can swear of higher than himself than himself. So he swears by his own life. He's not lying. The analogy with this proverb will not apply to you again in Israel. They're not going to be able to say we're being blamed for our dad. This is for our dad's sins. This is for two reasons. Number one, in spite of the warnings of men like the prophet Jeremiah, they will turn around and rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, who God had told them was his chastening rod. And Nebuchadnezzar will leave no two stones standing on top of each other in the entire city. The temple's going to be destroyed, and it's going to be 75 years before they get to rebuild, even begin to rebuild it. They will know this is because we rebelled. We rejected God's prophets. But you know, there's another way in which this gets fulfilled in all history. Because 500 years later, in this little town known as Bethlehem, in the nation that was supposed to be Israel, Judah, God took on human flesh and is born and he will live his life perfectly. So you and I no longer have to say these things. We get punished for our father's sins because we know in Christ our sins are forgiven as they should have known in the coming Savior their sins would be forgiven if they didn't refuse to repent. But he continues on with that. He says in verse 4, Pay attention. Each and every soul belongs to me. 
God doesn't say just each and every man, each and every woman. He says soul. The Hebrew word nephesh. It's the spark of life. Without it, you don't get into heaven, right? Without it, you are dead. This is all. This is the package deal. You as complete, each one of you belong to God. He says, as it is with the soul of the Father, so it also is with the soul of the Son. Each belongs to me. He spells out the soul, specifically the one that sins, is the one that dies. Now, what is death in the Bible? Yes, that's separation of the soul from the body. That's physical or temporal death. But recall, God had told Adam and Eve if they ate of that forbidden fruit, they would surely die. And we miss that they immediately died. Physically, they would live for several hundred years before they experienced what God didn't create them to experience, the separation of the soul from the body and physical death. But there's a different kind of death. It is the death of unbelief. It's not being connected to Christ as the branch is to the vine. It's not having the Holy Spirit in your heart that works to connect you to Christ, that organic union with our triune God. It's spiritual death. It's making seeing God as your enemy instead of your Savior. God gets to the root of the problem, not just the outcome of the sins that we do, it's each person's original sin and their rejection of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't punish you for your father's rejection, although that can mean that you're going to have to hear the word from somebody else. He punishes you for your rejection. But he offers salvation, salvation in Christ. So we see, first of all, the people aren't repenting because they're giving excuses and blame. They're blaming others. It's somebody else's fault. But don't kid yourself. Then, like Adam said, the woman whom you put here, he blames the woman, but he more so says, but it's your fault because you created her. Well, they get also right to the point of blaming God themselves. God says in verse 25, yet you guys are saying the way of the Lord is not correct. Now listen up, O house of Israel. Is not my ways correct? And the Hebrew actually is over and over again. Time and time again, you're accusing my ways of being not right, not just, not correct. But time and time again, when you look back and see my providing hand in history, am I not proven to be right and just? He says, is it not that your ways over and over again are not correct? Don't we have that way of blaming God, making it seem like we can tell God how to be God and it's as if our ways are better than God's ways? Some of the ways that man's always done this but are especially popular today. How can a loving God send anybody to hell? Blaming God, right? And the answer to that is a loving God who took on human flesh and removed the sins of the world so that the only thing that condemns you to hell is your own rejection. But if God loves me, if he truly loves me, then he will let me do this sin that I want to do and he'll stop seeing it as a sin. Name the sin. But you know, that falls short. You can just look at parenting. If a parent has a yard next to a very busy road and their child just loves to go out and play in that busy road, what kind of a fool would say, if you love your child, you'll let them go out and play in that busy road because that's what they really love to do. No, if they love the child, they will discipline the child. No, no, don't play out in that road. Maybe even put up a fence to keep them in because they love their child and don't want them wrapped around the bumper of a big four-wheel drive or any other vehicle. So we tend to blame God. You made me this way. You, you did this. But God has made us to receive his Holy Spirit and be holy in him. And so God spells this out for us. 
Stop giving excuses. Stop blaming others. Stop blaming me. Because we have only ourselves to blame. And he only holds us accountable for our sins as he spelled out. So there needs to be a new life. If we skip ahead to verse 32, and again, translating the Hebrew literally, he says, for I do not take pleasure in the death of the dying. In other words, they're dying now, and I don't take pleasure watching them die. Let me give you an analogy to explain what the Hebrew is saying. If a person's drowning out in the lake and you get in a boat and you get out there to them and you have one of those life rings and you have it attached to a rope and you throw it and you, and you hit it, it goes right around their head and it lands on them. And you start to pull them in. You've saved them. But if they pull that life ring off and insist on drowning, you have done everything you can to save them and they are rejecting it and you will have to sit there in your boat and watch them drown. God became a man. God died for our sins. The problem is not just the sins we actually commit. That's the fruit. The real problem is our sinful nature. We are mean, lean, God-hating machines. So God was perfect in our place, washes our sins away, and does that for the whole world. There's only one thing that condemns us. Unbelief. He works through that message to put His Holy Spirit in our hearts. So God says, I've thrown the life ring around you. There's only one reason you go to hell. It's because you reject my Holy Spirit, meaning then you reject me and my Son as your Savior. So He takes no pleasure in watching us sit there and reject the eternal life He has given to us. And so He says, repent and live. Change from this path. Have life. And he spells that out because there are many ways that we can pass the buck and fall from. We can pull that life preserver off of ourselves. He says, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and so produces a transgression, then he will die on account of them. Because of his transgressions which he made, he will die. So we've got to understand we're not righteous in and of ourselves. We're righteous because God's Holy Spirit has made our heart his home and we are credited with Christ's righteousness as we are connected to him and our sins are washed away. So you could change this and make it more simply if you want to when a believer, because only a believer is righteous, only a believer has Christ's righteousness, when a believer turns away from his faith and so produces a transgression. We're not talking about the sins you and I struggle with and lose and trust and forgiveness. We're talking about embracing a sin and driving the Holy Spirit out of our hearts. Then we end up producing the transgression, the misstep, the not doing the will of God, the stepping on the devil's property that we're not supposed to be stepping on. But God says that person is going to die. He loses his faith. And he will, in that state, end up in hell. Yet, we're told in verse 27, like the, like the son who said, I will not work in the parable, but ended up working. In verse 27, we're told, yet when a wicked man... Now, people think of evil people in history. A wicked person is anyone who's an unbeliever. Because they don't have that organic union with God. Yet when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness that he produced, and so he produces justice and righteousness, that man will preserve his soul. He's talking to Israelites, somebody who's rejected the Lord but recognizes it. Oh man, I don't like this. 
The Holy Spirit re-enters the heart. The person continues, goes back to the word of the Lord, and, and he produces the fruits of faith, wanting to hear the word of the Lord, repenting. He says that that person has preserved their very existence. They're grabbing hold of the life rope again and saying, pull me in, dear Savior. And so he spells out for that person again in verse 20. He says, and so he sees and he turns away from all his rebellion that he did. Every sin we commit is a rebellion against God's holiness, whether it be committed against our neighbor or against God himself. But this person they see and they turn away. They trust in the Lord for forgiveness. And the result, he will surely live, God says. He will not die. Now we no longer need to blame God and pass the blame. So we're told in verse 30, accordingly, I judge each one of you according to his ways. We confess once a year in the Athanasian Creed that we'll be judged by our deeds. It's not that our deeds save us. It's if we're saved, we're going to produce the fruits that God wants. One of those is repentance, confessing our sins. Another is trusting in the word of the Lord, coming to hear it, hear that we're saved. And if we're unbelievers, we'll produce the fruit of unbelief. Two people can be committing the same sin, and one can be repenting, and the other one, it's, it's an act of unbelief. So God says, O house of Israel, the declaration of the sovereign Lord, turn and repent away from all your rebellions. And the Hebrew word used there, translated as, the guilt of your perversions won't be a stumbling block for you. It's when we take God's holy will and we twist it to serve our own. God says, don't do this, but I'll find the exception. And then, I'll, you know, an example politically is like abortion. We know God wants us to save life. But somebody will say, but what if it's going to take the mother's life? And then they'll take the exception and say, now we can all have abortions and just murder babies right and left. See, it's the way we take God's will and we twist it to serve our own purposes. But then what happens when the person looks back at something has committed an abortion and says, oh, my gosh, I've murdered my child. Then the guilt sets in. Then the hurt and the pain. There's two ways that the guilt of our perversion, of our twisting God's will, can come back to bite us. The first is, we say, I, I've done this guilt so much that I've got to stay away from God because he could never forgive me. Or the other is to pass the block and say, how dare God hold me accountable for this? Either way, it becomes a stumbling block. It keeps us from turning to the Lord for forgiveness. So he says, cast all your rebellions away from upon yourselves that you have rebelled with them and make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. How do you take all those sins and cast them away from yourself? You did it at the beginning of the worship service. You confess your sins to God and his Holy Spirit in your heart leads you to trust and believe that Jesus Christ has washed them away and once again put his righteousness upon you. He does it every day because you're united to him. How do you get a clean heart for yourself? You keep coming to the word and the Holy Spirit makes your heart clean through that word by which you receive the blood of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, as God was telling the Israelites, you keep turning your back from me generation after generation and this is it. They gave their excuses. But he has put in your heart, as he did with men like Daniel, to not do that. And so today we listen to the Lord's admonition and he empowers us to do it because when we hear it, his Holy Spirit enters our heart so that we repent and live, giving up all excuses and blame. We stop blaming others. We stop blaming God. Instead, we trust in the new life in Christ. We confess our sins and are thankful for the new heart that he gives us. Amen.
Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless in his presence for all eternity to our only God and Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ for all time, both now and forever. Amen.